0: pray for our students you know graduation was strange Um, sports and extracurriculars are strange we want to pray for our students as they wrestle through these things we also want to pray for educators tonight as they try to figure all this kind of stuff out we'll also be praying for those who are suffering high-risk people who are suffering um, through the COVID season so tonight we'll be meeting here at six or join us online for even just for a few minutes to join us in prayer tonight as we pray and ask God's mercy on all of this. Um, those of you who are watching at home, most of our church is still at home. Um, let me just say to you uh, a little bit about what's going on here on Sunday morning. I know you're trying to figure out when should I come back, what do we do with our kids. Uh, we are having two services. There's the nine o'clock. That's a mask required service. It is by far the smaller service. There's a lot of room in that service. If you show up at the door at that nine o'clock service, you do not have a mask, we'll offer you one. If you cannot wear one, we'll ask you to come back to the 11 o'clock service. So I I hope some of you that are are mask wearable, you'll, you'll consider coming to that service. There's a lot more space in that. Um, Then we are offering this service, the 11 o'clock service, it's mask recommended. Lots of people here are not wearing masks. You are welcome here. Your kids are welcome in both services. Um, I know that's a terrifying thing for many of you, Uh, but they're welcome here. Um, You can bring them um, and there's audio in the lobby. We have the mom's room has audio in it. And if you're just absolutely desperate, you can step out into the courtyard and watch it on your phone. Uh, with your kids there, and it still counts as being gathered here with us. So I hope that you'll, you'll come and consider joining us for one of those. When you join, if you consider joining our services, please sign up um, ahead of time. That helps us make sure we're able to arrange the chairs to the maximum and provide adequate social distancing. So please, uh, please do sign up. You've got that information in your, in your emails. So there's a guy named Donlan Andrews who got a $10,000 reward by his travel insurance company. Square Mouth intentionally added language in its policy documentation offering a reward for anyone who was still reading the details, buried way down in that thing you check and said you read. Well, this guy actually read it and they gave him a $10,000 reward just for reading it and contacting them. Later on in the United Kingdom, Manchester-based firm Purple provided free Wi-Fi access in 2017. They wanted to make people aware of the dangers of free Wi-Fi access, so they included this, um, this stipulation in their comments that you would commit to 1,000 hours of community service, including cleaning toilets and relieving sewer blockages. So if you check, I've read this and I committed to that when you got the free Wi-Fi, that's what you are signing up for. Um, there's another one, um, another security firm, they, they were dealing with Wi-Fi issues as well. And so in their sign-up, they had what was known as the Herod Clause. And if you signed that you had read it and you agree, it said the recipient agreed to assign their firstborn child to us for the duration of eternity. The last one I'll share with you was by British retailer GameStation. Station. Um, if you did not uncheck the box on their system, there was a non-transferable option to claim for now and forevermore your immortal soul. So by not reading the fine print, you were essentially giving them your immortal soul for all, for all eternity. Fine print matters. And what we want to do today is look at the fine print of what Jesus says, what Jesus asks his disciples to sign if they're gonna follow him. I call it fine print, but really when you hear Jesus say it, you're gonna see it's in bold and all caps. Um, What it says about our immortal souls is not a joking matter. Listen to some of the language we'll encounter today in Mark 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. So let's look carefully together at our discipleship contract with Jesus in the back end of Mark 9. There are a series of about four teachings there. We'll walk through them together. Find your way there on your phone or in your Bible, however you get there, and I'll I'll pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, be merciful to us now. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us so that we might follow Jesus more closely, more faithfully. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, start in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. This is what we read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. So this little geographical reference is important. It signals Jesus' turn to the cross. His journey to the cross begins here in earnest, and that will be the end goal of his travels in the remainder of Mark's gospel. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem now and to the cross. His focus during the rest of the book is increasingly on the training of the twelve. You can see it here. He cloaks his location from the crowds and from outsiders so he can focus on training his disciples. And what follows in verse 31 is the core of his curriculum. Look at it with me. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise This is the second of three predictions in Mark by Jesus of His impending death and resurrection. And when you stop to think about it, the level of detail that Jesus is giving about what's going to happen to Him is remarkable, Um, especially in the third prediction. If you just flipped over a page or two, this is how it reads. Jesus says in Mark 10, "'See, we are going up to Jerusalem,' And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So clearly, incredible level of detail here. Jesus knew where he was headed and what he was headed to in great detail. And that's what makes this such a stunning display of humility. Jesus is willingly walking into all of that with eyes and hands wide open. The Apostle Paul would later muse on this and say that Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. This is Jesus' humble, loving choice playing out. And it is the way we must follow if we follow Jesus the way of sacrificial, loving humility. Just the geography of Jesus' journey as he turns here and heads to Jerusalem and the cross that waits him there excludes pride. And we're about to see that more specifically in the next few verses. But in verse 32, we see that the disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. So the disciples don't get it on multiple levels. They can't make sense out of a Messiah who's coming to die. He was supposed to deliver, not die. This makes no sense to them. And they're clueless about what it meant to follow him in this humble, cruciform way as we're about to see in Jesus' second teaching in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, so what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is ironic up against Jesus' prediction of his death. Professor David Garland captures that irony. He says, the picture Mark presents has tragic comic dimensions. Jesus walks ahead in silence on his way to his sacrificial death while his straggling disciples push and shove, trying to establish the order of the procession behind him. This silly debate they're having could have its roots in what Carson taught us about last week where Jesus picks three of the 12, takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration with him, leaves the other nine behind. However, um, as Professor James Edwards points out, it's bigger than that. He makes this really interesting insight. He says in all three of Jesus' passion predictions, his predic- predictions about the cross in mark, Jesus speaks of the necessity of his rejection, suffering and death, and following those, all three All three of those, the disciples voice their ambitions for status and prestige. Each time Jesus speaks of surrendering his life, and the disciples speak of fulfilling theirs, he counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. So it's more pervasive than just this one instance. Their pride seems to follow them everywhere. And so Jesus addresses it head on. This part's in bold print, right? Verse 35, Jesus sat down and called the 12. Said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Let's just sit on that for a second. If this is what it means to follow Jesus, to give up being first and become last of all, a slave of all. Do you still want to follow Jesus? I mean, read the fine print here. Sure what it sounds like it means to be a disciple of Jesus, right? Jesus is turning their ambition completely upside down here. It's one of those topsy-turvy statements he likes to make that messes with us. Like in chapter 8, he said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now in our passage, some suggest Jesus is simply redirecting a good ambition, the desire to be great. Uh, Pastor John Piper says that. He says, Jesus doesn't condemn the quest for greatness. He just radically transforms it. And and that could be the case. But I can't help but wonder if Jesus isn't laying out a course for his disciples that's even more radical than just a different pathway to greatness. There's a Swiss theologian, his name is Ulrich Luz. And he writes this, he says, Jesus is not just combating excessive ambition. He's combating the ambition to be great or first at all. Nor is Jesus advocating a higher or lower way to be great. He's talking about giving up the whole idea of wanting to be great at all. And I think Dr. Ulrich may be on to something. I think Jesus may be doing something even more radical than showing us a new and better way to be great. I think he's actually asking us to abandon our personal pursuit of greatness and become the servant of all. You know, this is the only way for me that I can make this work in my heart and the only way that I can make it sync with verses like what Paul says in Philippians 2 where I'm supposed to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others as more significant or more important than myself. One pastor put his finger on our pride and how it works long, long, nearly 400 years ago. He said... What a constant companion, what a tyrannical commander, what a sly and subtle insinuating enemy is this sin of pride. Is not pride the sin of devils, the firstborn of hell? Is it not that wherein Satan's image does much consist? And is it to be tolerated in men who are so engaged against Satan and his kingdom as we are? The very design of the gospel is to abase us, And the work of grace is begun and carried on in humiliation. Humility is not a mere ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of a new creature. It is a contradiction in terms to be a Christian and not be humble. So the fine print is really clear here on what it looks like to follow Jesus. We must abandon our prideful pursuits and be the servant of all. All, not the select few who are deserving or worthy or grateful. You must serve them all, Jesus says. I was challenged recently by the example of a guy named Tim Boyle. He's the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. Some of you are probably wearing their stuff uh, from time to time. Uh, he made the decision to sacrifice almost all of his salary so that others within the company would continue to receive a paycheck. His compensation in 2018 was in excess of $3 million. In 2020, he'll get a paycheck worth 10000 um. They were forced, Columbia was forced to close all of its brick-and-mortar locations after orders to stay home to reduce the spread of coronavirus. And so the company invoked a catastrophic pay program, which enabled its 3,500 employees to continue to receive pay during the indefinite closure, in part because of Tim Boyle's sacrifice. Now, two things you need to know about Tim Boyle. One, he's a billionaire, so I think he's going to be okay. All right? um, but secondly, as far as I can tell, he's not a Christian. And so here's what I'm guessing. Jesus is going to ask more of you. It's there in the fine print, right? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So if that's the case, are you sure you want to follow Jesus? because it will likely cost you more than it cost Tim Boyle. You must become the last of all and the servant of all. And to help his kind of thick disciples and us get it, Jesus now deploys an object lesson. Verse 36, he took a child, put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, Jesus' lesson here has a literal application. Children's ministry may very well be the best way to be humble according to Jesus, right? And right now, in heaven, Stephanie Jackson just let out a glorious shout, right? Uh, there's a challenge. John, John Piper gives us a challenge, He says, you must not look down on or despise children. You must not say, brothers, this is simply women's work. If you would be great, you will not rule out nursery duty. You will pray earnestly about teaching primaries. You will think hard about leading a boys' club or girls' club. You will spend yourself in the fight to overcome child killing. Literally, serving children is the humble place. But symbolically, it has broader meaning. One writer put it this way, Jesus uses the child as a symbol of the little ones who are little esteemed, who are needy, who are socially invisible and easily ignored, who can be hurt and dominated without anyone knowing or protesting. Probably someone's already come to your mind. They are the untutored, the persons on the fringes, the ones whom no one misses when they absent themselves from worship, the ones who are tolerated but not embraced into the fellowship. These humble members may be easily written off as marginal, but these little ones are not insignificant in the eyes of their Lord. Jesus says to us, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me and for God. Our response James Edward writes, to the hungry, thirsty, lonely, naked, sick, and imprisoned is our response to God. How's your response to God these days? Jesus is calling us here in this fine print to a gracious, sacrificial humility that serves, especially serves the disenfranchised. Let's look at the third teaching briefly. In verse 38, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, The disciples' pride is showing again. Did you catch it? See, you remember last week, Carson taught us they had just botched an exorcism and now they criticize and try to obstruct someone who's succeeding where they failed just because they aren't on their team. And notice that they're distressed with this outlier exorcist because they say he's not following us you would have expected them to say they're distressed because he's not following you, Jesus. But they want the unaligned exorcist behind them in the procession that follows Jesus. That's what matters to them. And Jesus here is more inclusive than his disciples, which seems often the case still. The exalting of his name is more important than their distinctions, It is too easy for us to lose sight of who the real enemy is. Early in the 13th century, um, the Mongol Empire spanned Asia from the Black Sea to the Pacific Ocean. And Kublai Khan asked Marco Polo, the the guy of swimming pool fame, um, they asked him to persuade the Christian church in Rome to send 100 men to teach Christianity to his court, an unbelievable opportunity. But the Christians in Rome were in such disarray, fighting amongst themselves, that it was 28 years before a single man, let alone 100, reached the great court. And already retired, the emperor said, it is too late, I have grown old in my idolatry. Jesus says the one who is not against us is for us. And he is calling us to a gracious humility that enlarges the team beyond just our tribe, right? Now let's look at the final story together. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, again, Jesus is concerned about the little ones, right? Right? This time it's likely a reference to all of his disciples and he views them with affection. He views you with affection. He calls you his little one. And to cause them to stumble brings the strongest of warnings. Jesus says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Literally, the language Jesus is using here is it's a donkey millstone that is one so large that a man couldn't budget it takes a beast of burden to bear it and he says you'd be better off with that tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than it will be if you face judgment for causing one of my little ones to stumble jesus is deathly serious here don't cause someone here to stumble because of your selfish pride He is calling us to a humility that protects the faith of other believers. And then he makes his warning more personal for us. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If we are to follow Jesus, the fine print is reading, we must be willing to make great sacrifices to be free from our sin. And the image is, imagery is vivid. Your sin can drag you down to hell a place of undying worm and unquenchable fire and the remedy's equally severe. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye. It's not literal. Jesus is not telling you to self-mutilate but neither is it less severe because of that. He's saying do whatever you must. Get rid of every snare that so easily entangles you. Sell it, avoid it, block it. Burn it if you must. So, the, the first year of our marriage, Steph and I, um, and it's been a long time ago, but I still remember this visit vividly. We were in this little apartment that we rented after we got married, and I had gone to bed earlier. Steph was staying up late. This is a pattern that's followed us to this day. She's a night owl. And I'm in bed, and I hear this strange sound in the kitchen. So, I go out into the kitchen and it's the garbage disposal, it's running, it's probably midnight, and the garbage disposal's running. And my, my sweet little wife is cramming cookies down the garbage disposal, one at a time, because she felt a very real temptation to eat those cookies in a way that she didn't feel like was right. And I'm like, couldn't you just throw them in the trash? Being the sensitive spiritual leader that I am. Um, <laughs> But, you know, she wanted to cut it off. She wanted to pluck it out. And this is also a pattern that has followed us to this day. It's why she is who she is. She cuts it off. She tears it out. I know someone who denied his tablet internet access. He carried it around like a brick. I, have a, I know a lady who quit her gym membership. I know people who stopped TV shows in mid-season and never found out how it turned out. and know one couple sold their mountain home because it was a temptation to them. Not that those things are wrong, they're not, but they were for these folk and they knew they had to cut it off. They had to, they had to gouge it out. The zeal to follow Jesus requires a zeal to cut off sin. And the imagery is wherever we go, our feet, whatever we do, our hands, whatever we view, our eyes. This morning, is there something you need to cut off or pluck out so you can follow Jesus more faithfully? Is there something? Jesus is calling us here in the fine print to a discipleship that radically cuts off sin. He closes with several rather cryptic remarks about salt. We'll focus just on the very last one of them. Look at the last part of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Um, They're parallel statements, I think. It's like a reference to sharing salt at a meal. Having fellowship together at the table. Having harmonious relationships of peace. And this is part of the fine print of following Jesus together. Peace. Perhaps especially in these divisive days, our nation, it's divided by wealth, it's divided by race, it's divided by politics. We're even divided about masks. Um, But not here, right? Not here not here if we're going to follow Jesus? We must share salt and have peace with one another, which means we have to lay down our pride and humbly become last of all, the servant of all. We must protect one another from sin and radically cut off our own. It's in the fine print of Jesus' contract for all of his disciples. Do you still want to follow him? Let's pray.